This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. This coaching series on All Have Another Podcast is brought to you by VDOT. You can use VDOT to help with your training, or if you are a coach, you can use it as well. VDOT is a coaching app for runners of all levels based on the science of legendary exercise scientist and coach, Dr. Jack Daniels. If you're a coach and you want to learn more, send me an email, lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com. You can get a free 30-day coaching trial. And if you are interested in using their adaptive trainer as an athlete, just go to v.o2.com or download v.o2 on iOS or Android. You can use the code lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, for 20% off. All right, today on this coaching series, I'm so excited to bring Sheila Burrell onto the podcast. It was such a joy to talk to Sheila. Sheila's a two-time Olympian in the heptathlon. She's a five-time U.S. national champion. She's a world champion bronze medalist. And in the 2004 Olympics, she placed fourth. She is an alumni of UCLA, and she's now the head track and cross country coach for San Diego State University. In this episode, we do get into her own career as a heptathlete in the first half of the episode, and then we get into the coaching stuff, which I was so excited to hear about her story, what got her into coaching, uh, the people who influenced her and inspired her to be the coach that she is today. Sheila is also the president of the Women's Running Coaches Collective, which is a really cool organization that she's going to tell you about in this episode. You can find the Women's Running Coaches Collective on Instagram. They're just Women's Running Coaches Collective. They're doing really great work. Definitely go check that out. If you are enjoying this podcast series or you know someone who might enjoy this conversation with Sheila, please share it on social media, share it with your friends. And of course, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. If you have just like 30 seconds to do that, that would be extremely helpful and potential new listeners finding this podcast. All right, friends, enjoy my conversation with Sheila. I am so excited to welcome Sheila Burrell to the show for this coaching series. Welcome to the show, Sheila. Thank you. How are you? I am doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing good. It's a nice uh, sunny, sunny, sunny Southern California morning. Cold though. Is it ever not? Yeah. <laughs> Is it ever not? I was just thinking about that because it's like snowing in Indiana where I'm from. We're like 45 degrees here in North Carolina. What is cold to you? No, it's cold in San Diego right now. Like for is us- it? You know, we are 50s. Um, it's crisp. In the morning, it can get below 40. So okay. it's, it's cold. Okay. Wow. But the sun's still out. So that's good. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking because I was running in my tank top and I, I've only been in this climate for a year and a half. And I was thinking I'm out here running in a tank top and everybody else is like in winter coats jogging because they're not used to this 40 degrees. And you must be a distance runner. So <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. You'll never catch a sprinter out running in the cold. I'll tell you that with a sports bra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not enough time to warm up. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm su- super excited to have you on for the coaching series. But before we dive into your coaching, we have to get into your history, your own history, being an Olympian in the heptathlon. I'm so excited to hear about that part of your story as well. Can you give us a little rundown of how you even got into heptathlon? Um, I ran at UCLA in college, and so I, uh, out of high school, as a, as a three-sport athlete in high school, played volleyball, uh, basketball, and ran track, and just was an all-around, just kind of an all-around athlete growing up. You know, spent most of my time growing up playing with the guys and all that stuff, and uh, honestly, didn't know anything about the heptathlon until I got to college. I think UCLA was the, you know, the school that primarily recruited me as a heptathlete at the time. Jackie Jordan Kersey was still training there with Bob Kersey. You know, Gail Devers was Gail Devers recruited me out of high school. Like my home visit was with Gail Devers, wow, and uh, and Bob Kersey. and so, you know, the HEP became you know something that you know I knew I was an all around athlete. That's something that in college I had to learn how to do all the events because I didn't know how to hurdle when I got to college. I'd never thrown an implement when I got to college. All I did was sprints and jumps in high school, and so I learned the events. And by my 
junior year, senior year, I was in NCAAs and I was all American. I made it to nationals in the hurdles, I think my junior year um, under the old system, of course, for NCAAs now. And then uh, just continued after that. How do you like identify someone as a heptathlete? They recruited you for that. How did they identify, oh, she could be really good at that? You know, it's it's funny to me. I've, I've, uh, I've had friends and, you know, just training partners or other athletes who are like elite athletes, like professional Olympic caliber athletes. And they all think that they can do the hep. Like, oh, I can do that. I would be a heptathlete. I would be a heptathlete. When really, <laughs> they could be a heptathlete. I mean, they could probably do some of the events, but... The HEP is a very, um, it's a fun event, but you got to have a, I think there's a certain personality type that, uh, not just a personality type, but sort of like a um, a mindset that makes a good HEP. Mm-hmm. Not only do you need to be an all-around athlete, but like we're the first ones at the track. We're the last ones to leave. We want to be there all day. You know, we compete, hurt, something hurts, it doesn't matter, you know, <laughs> It's uh, it's an event where you have an athlete who's really good in a, in a single event, possibly. Like might be good in the hurdles or might be good in a high jump. Doesn't and maybe can jump and doesn't necessarily mean they're a good athlete. Um, there's a lot. There's an emotional uh, component to being a multi-eventer as well, like being able to transition from event to event. And there's just a certain kind of um, personality and uh, emotional IQ, I think, that you need to be a good hip athlete. Okay, will you run down the events really quick for listeners who might not know? Because I'm I'm sure I will botch it. So so for your younger for your younger younger folks, you know, no one will remember who Jackie Joanna Kersey is, but Jackie Joanna Kersey is our world record holder in the heptathlon. Um, they might know who you know it was Dan O'Brien for Americans, and now it's um, a guy from Great Britain, I believe. Uh, that's the the world record holder for the decathlon. So the heptathlon is stands for hep stands for seven seven is. The hurdles, 100-meter hurdles, high jump, shot put, 200. That's day one. Day two, long jump, javelin, 800 meters. Wow. You finish with 800. Finish with 800. That's why I think every sprinter who thinks they can be a heptathlete and wants to finish off the event or a jumper who thinks they want to finish off the event with 800, I don't think they really want to do that. So <laughs> I'm curious when you were competing, what what events were your strongest and what did you struggle with the most? So I always... I always classify those as, as strengths and my challenging events and the events okay. that I was really good at. So, you know, I made two Olympic teams. Um, I got fourth in Athens. I got a bronze medal in the world championships in 01. And I've won five U.S. national championships um, and made, you know, several teams in between or over the years. So the events that I initially were strong with were, you know, all those sprints, obviously, uh, hurdles and jumps. So I was a 13-0 hurdler. You know, I was, you know, my most challenging event, I would say, was high jump. You know, I was probably a 5'7 high jumper. I was an average shot putter. I was a 22-second, you know, long jumper. I was a 21-foot, I mean, 22-second, 200-meter runner and 20, and 21-foot 20, and uh, long jumper. I was a 50-meter javelin thrower and I was a 210, 800-meter runner. Mm. And so, you know, when I was competing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm older now. I made the, the team in the 2000, 2000 2004 Olympic team. Uh, and my medal for Worlds was in 2001. So now, up until Anna Hall, Anna Hall just recently got a bronze medal at the World Championships in uh, Eugene, Oregon, my background. Up until Anna medaled, I was the only American since Jenny, Jackie Joyner Kersey to have medaled at an international championship in the heptathlon. So mm. I think that we are, you know, we're doing really good in that event now in the United States. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. How do we get the fans more excited about the heptathlon? Yeah, we're always uh, we're always out there hurdling and coaching the hur- coaching the hurdles with a smaller the smaller group. It's it's personality driven. I mean, I think about back in the day when you had Dan and Dave in the decathlon and when you had Jackie uh competing. I think the last really big heptathlete internationally that we had a lot of fanfare around was a girl named Carolina Cluft from Sweden. You know, people loved her. And so in the United States, I think Anna Hall is going to just personality wise and just her ability and her talent is going to draw a lot of people uh, to be interested in the multi. So I think she's got a, a great future ahead of her. Can you tell the story, Sheila, about when you started looking to go pro and you moved and you didn't have any money? You wanted to do this professionally. Can you tell the story about how it worked out for you? Oh, geez. I was homeless for a little bit. I think I slept in my car, slept on some couches, slept on some friends' couches. Um, uh, basically, you know, the sport of track and field and the amount of 
financial support that's in the sport is is way different than what it was when I came out of college. And so, you know, I left college and was sort of in that, we used to call that the post-collegiate black hole. Mm. You know, you came out of college wanting to continue to compete at a sub-elite or elite level, but had really no, if you didn't, you know, no money. <laughs> uh, now athletes leave college when they have like $100,000 contracts. You know, there's, you know, I've, I've had a, you know, no personally athletes that I've coached who like, if I didn't have a contract, I wouldn't be running right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us back in the day, if we didn't have a contract, we were still running no matter what, because we had this big dream and goal that was, you know, to be an Olympian or, you know, to, to, to be an Olympian for me. And so it was really difficult, uh, a hard transition for, for me moving around to coaches. I used to have to make my own uniforms, you know, go and have a friend of mine, you know, let's go, let's come up with a uniform and go someplace and have them make it. So it, uh, you'll see old pictures of me in like a gold and black uniform that we had made. Uh, and so I relied a lot on the support of people who, who supported me to make that transition. When I left, I left, left LA, I moved to Kansas. Cliff Revelto became my coach. And once Cliff Revelto became my coach, a lot of things changed. Uh, got picked up by Nike, got a Nike contract. Um, a bonus contract, not like a contract. I got a bonus contract. What, what <laughs> does that mean? So a bonus contract is when you don't get a salary. You don't get a, you know, a salary from, from Nike. You get like, if you perform, you get X amount of dollars. Okay. You know, I think maybe I had a, I had a travel stipend and I think I had something for like a physio or massage or something like that. And so I started off with a bonus contract and you know, and getting uniforms. The biggest thing for me when I first came out, this is back in the day, was being able to have a uniform was a big deal. (laughs) You know, whether you're unattached or you have something behind your name was a big deal back then, right? And this is in the, you know, it's only 2023, but uh, my last games was in 2004. I didn't get a deal until I was, until 2000. Wow. So this is 20 20 plus years ago. And so it it was a lot. There's a, you have to be, there's a lot of internal motivation back then to continue to run track. Running track was not profitable. You know, I think when I was competing at one point, I was probably the only heptathlete during my years where I was successful that was sponsored and making a little bit of money mm. or the most amount of money during my time. And so it just took a lot of, I was very driven, very much head in the, you know, head in the sand kind of about, about my performance and training. And then, uh, and the Cliff Revelto kind of came on as my as my coach and things changed for me then. Training got better. You know, just I moved to Kansas. I left L.A. I left Los Angeles, California, and moved to the middle of nowhere, Manhattan, Kansas, <laughs> before the Target got built, before they had restaurants. <laughs> you moved there for him. I moved there for him and to train. How did you and know so of him? A, he came to visit. Um, I was training down in, in Southern California, down in L.A., and he came to visit one of his former athletes that was training with in our training group just to say hi. And he helped me out with a high jump an event I struggled with. And he came out and in one session, I like, I jumped like 5'10 or 5'9 or whatever it was. And then when it came time for me to change coaches, um, I remembered him and he and my friend who worked with him and called him up. And basically he didn't, Cliff will tell this story. I pretty much recruited myself to Kansas State. <laughs> He had no, at that point, he had no interest in coaching post-collegiates. He was not coaching any post-collegiate. He was only coaching athletes that he coached. They graduated from his school. He had never taken an outside athlete to train. And I pretty much showed up at his, at his you know, in his, in his office and had a list of paper of what my goals were and pretty much said, I'm coming and this is, you're going to coach me <laughs> if he tells you the story. <laughs> um, so that's what I got there. And then I didn't have a place to stay. I, I moved there with nothing. Wow. There's no place to stay, no job, no money, no nothing. A friend of mine let me stay in her extra bedroom. And things just sort of happened from there. I got a, I got a deal with uh, General Motors. We had a thing called Team Behind the Team. I did a commercial. I got a car. I had uh, you know, someone from my hometown who followed me throughout the years, started sending me money because I literally had no money. Yeah. None. I was just going on straight faith and a dream. And wow. you know, it had to work. What's that person doing now? The one that was sending you money? Uh, you know, they were a, a couple who owned a restaurant. Okay. There was an older couple that graduated from my high school, like okay. in the 60s wow. or 70s or something like that. So it was like, they I came out, invited my family. I used to go to the restaurant in Santa Fe. I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah. And so um, I went to the poorest high school in the city. 
Mm. And, uh, and he, he really saw someone from his community mm. um, doing something well and wanted to support me. So it was, it was amazing. It was great. That is such a cool story. It was a, it was a godsend. I'm telling you, it was literally one of those things where I had no money. All of a sudden, like, this guy sent me a mess and a mail, a letter, a letter, me a letter and sent me a letter with money to help support, you know, my goals. Wow. Okay. So where did the drive come from? Like, I'm always curious to know, is this how you were raised? Did someone instill this? Is this just who you were born to be? Where did you learn to be so mentally tough when you know, like, okay, the odds are against me here. Like I got to figure this out on my own. Um, you know, now that I'm, I'm the age I am and I look at my, my family and my upbringing, which isn't ideal. We have some really badass bossy women in my family. Mm. <laughs> I think that uh, my grandfather used to say that Ivor Burrell needs to be is is always in charge uh-huh. of something, <laughs> and that seems to be the case. Like everyone in family is in charge. So wherever they're at, they are the manager, they're the you know the director, or they're something. And so, in my family, I think there's just this this common thing that we all are uh, supposed to be in charge. One. Two, we're all pretty bossy as women. We're all pretty, pretty straightforward, direct, and you know. But where did that come from? Um, you know, I, I I told this story plenty of times that I don't know. I can't say, oh, this came from because I had this person or that person do that for me. I just know there were a lot of people when I was growing up. You know, I grew up and my mother. Um, I grew, was raised by my grandparents first of all. My grandfather, and my grandfather raised me, so my aunts and uncles are like my brothers and sisters, and my mother was not in my life early on because she, you know, my mother was, my mother was a drug addict when I was growing up. And so my grandmother sort of took over and raised me. The people who influenced me the most, I would say are teachers. Mm. I would say that my teachers who I'm still friends with and still call, still talk to, uh, really had the most impact in me and exposed me to things outside of my current situation or circumstances. And so just having having the exposure and awareness of there is something bigger than a situation. I was my current situation as a high school athlete or as a junior high, you know, student or life and, you know, figuring out who I was and what this family dynamic was based off of, you know, who my mother was and all that kind of stuff just gave me a taste of like, this is what I want and this is who I'm going to be. Wow. That's so powerful. I'm, I I have the deepest respect for teachers, like the difference you can make in one kid's life. My teachers, uh, teachers, activities, directors, coaches, coaches included. Um, my high school coach, I still called him when I went home every time until he died. He just died a couple of years ago, oh. you know, still stayed in contact with my high school coach. Um, my freshman year English teacher is like one of my very, very good friends and best friends now, you know, so. Wow. No, my, my volleyball coach didn't retire until I left high school. You know, I she was like a second mother to me. Until she passed away, I was at her house every time I went home to visit. Uh. Um, and so there were there were key people along the way who just really helped me. Like, I can't tell you what the drive was, but there was something about, I guess, me, a potential, you see potential uh, on, on athletes. You know, I was a bright kid, um, athletic. When I was young, I was shy. I was not, I was shy when I was, when I was smaller, um, that they just really supported me and nurtured me in ways that, um, I needed to give me that. Well, what I'm also hearing too, is that power of staying in touch with people that did make an impact because I don't know how much of this is you staying in touch versus them staying in touch. Um, but oftentimes I feel like we get out of touch with people simply because we're expecting them to reach out. And it sounds like you've made an effort to keep those people in your life. Well, they were, they, they were in those formative years, like those were the people that kept me going, Mm. you know, my family, of course. Yes. But outside of my, my family, my family's really close. Right. But outside of my family during those times of my life that were really challenging. Right. You know, I was going through some things, trying to figure out who I was and, you know, how to deal with emotions and things like that. And um, those people were, you know, if I had a problem, I need to talk. Those are the people I called. Okay. So how much of that do you think influenced you ultimately to be the coach that you are today? 100%. I think that 
you know, for the way, the way I coach and the way I run my program is I believe in relationships. Any, any recruit that has come to my program, I will talk about that we are a coach athlete relationship centered program. I think relationships are key, whether I'm a good coach technically or bad coach, you know, technically the relationship I have with the athletes that I work with, if they're willing to run through a brick wall for me, they will run through a brick wall Mm. because they know I care and I've got their back. You know, you can't as a, you know, in, as a college coach, it's a little difficult because you've got so many athletes, you know, but you got to coach an athlete for who they are and where they're at. I think a huge part of, of how I sort of my, my vision of how I try to do what I do is based off of how um, people helped me, you know, is how I, how I came through and the support that I got and really realizing the people who impacted me the most were my coaches, my teachers. And having that made me feel like coaching is like teaching. Mm. And so I I have a very values-based approach to, uh, to coaching. All right. This coaching series is supported by VDOT. This is the coaching platform I have been using for probably four or five years now. V.O2 is a coaching app for runners of all levels based on the science of legendary exercise scientist and coach, Dr. Jack Daniels. Vida offers access to the highest quality Olympic style training for runners of all levels, right from any mobile device. Designed to help runners train correctly and more intelligently, Vida elicits maximum benefit while reducing the required effort. Okay, so you can utilize Vida as an athlete or a coach. They have a really cool adaptive trainer that is super simple. You input your training preferences and the app will personalize your workouts and coach you leading up to your future races. This is much less expensive than hiring a traditional running coach. And unlike most running apps, VDOT knows you. It understands the type of runner you are, what you're training for, and how to maximize your efforts. So if you want to try the adaptive trainer, go check it out. Download VDOT02 on iOS or Android, or visit v.o2.com and just select the adaptive trainer. You can use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y for 20% off. Now, if you're a coach, coaching could never get easier because you can drop down workouts, you can save workouts, you can schedule for months out, weeks out, however far out you want to schedule. You can create training plans and just add someone to VDOT and they can read their training plan directly from VDOT. You can create templates and you can communicate with your athletes on VDOT, which is a little bit more streamlined than constantly emailing and texting. This has made my coaching experience much simpler and also easier to track how my athletes are doing. I highly recommend checking it out as a coach and you can get a 30-day free trial Visit v.o2.com to learn more. Email me, lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com. If you have specific questions, I can connect you with Vida as well. And I'm so grateful that they're supporting this series. So this coaching series is made possible by Vida. v.o2.com. Use the code lindsay for 20% off the adaptive trainer. If you're a coach, sign up for the 30-day free trial and shoot me an email, lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com if you have any questions at all. All right, friends, back to the show. Okay, so you're the head coach at San Diego State University for cross country Mm -hmm. and track and field. Yes. What does that look like coming back from a heptathlon background, coaching cross country as well? I can coach every event on the track. I can't say I can coach all of them at a high level, but I can coach every event on the track. I've been at San Diego State now going going in my 14th season. Wow. And being a heptath, being a heptathlete has definitely helped me because I could, as a hiring assistant, made it easy. I can, you know, pick and choose what event areas I was going to coach. And I believe in letting coaches coach their strengths. So whatever my assistant coach's strength was, that was the area I put him and I moved into another area on the, on the speed power side. My first two years at San Diego state, I fired my distance coach. My cross country coach got fired for the first semester. So I ended up coaching a distance team the first couple of years. Um, I learned, you know, I tell the story that Jack Daniels uh, book of running was my friend for a couple of years. Love it. And I uh, called, Called my I used to have Georgetown before I got to San Diego State. Called my buddies back at UConn to ask them you know, about workouts and stuff like that. But I think being able to be well-rounded and a student of the sport and as a as a as a former elite athlete, 
going into coaching, I wasn't an athlete that, you know, coached the way I was coached. I was an athlete that learned to be a better coach. Mm-hmm. So I took the, uh, I took the initiative and I took the, the interest in learning how to, you know, be a, a great coach seriously. So I studied a lot, I watched a lot of videos, studied a lot. What is your biggest takeaway from Jack Daniel's book? I'm so curious. Uh, 20 times 400 meters. <laughs> <laughs> 20 times 400 or 16 times 400. Uh, uh, I'm not even joking. Like workouts were like, what do I need to do? When? How do they work? <laughs> it was like the workout that was like, seemed to get the job done was a bunch of 400s. Oh, that's so good. I love it. I remember in high school, we did a 400 work. I, I ran distance 400 workout. That was like, you had to hit your pace and until you, and you kept doing the, you know, 400 until you missed your pace. And that was always like a mind thing. Cause you're like, do I want to just slow down so I can be done? Like I am done with this workout. Once you get to like 15, you know? Well, for the 5k, like, yeah, I actually, this is actually like the 5k because I had to coach it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my I goodness. love DMRs, right? There's certain events I like because I had to coach you and understand like 5K or 10K is hard mentally. Yeah, like, that's a lot of laps. It's a lot of laps, but hitting, you know, figuring out the pace. And we had this one girl named Marianne Hogan, who's like my favorite, you know, one of my one of my favorites, who I still stay in touch with. I still stay in touch with a lot of my athletes. Hmm. Um, but uh, the Marianne, man, she she uh, she PR'd and, you know, she's, she's a worst sea level school. We scored at, at conference in, in Wyoming at 7,000 feet wow. because, because she was driven for sure. But we also, you know, we have this thing called team before self at San Diego state, but mm-hmm. she was, she was down for the team. And so, uh, yeah, five K's are, are super interesting because I coached it. <laughs> you know, the ins and outs now. I know the periphery yeah, enough. Yeah. Um, talk to me about your program a little bit more. You, you're D1. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that look like with recruiting and forming your program when you're not one of like big, big schools, but you're in with the big dogs? Yeah, so we're we're considered what's, you know, it's power five schools now. A few years ago, several years ago, they decided to, you know, change NCAA, I guess, a lot, a lot to do a conference realignment. That happened. And so there's now something called power five schools. And now there's something called group of five. And I forgot what the, the next tier is. So for those of you out there who don't know anything, we're basically considered a mid-major program. Okay. You know, we're, we're a mid-major in San Diego state. And over the years, like my first, I'd never being who I was and coming from, like, from a background I came from, you know, having been a two-time Olympian and had some success you know, coaching before I got to San Diego State and just uh, in business outside of outside of coaching, I never really saw myself as like, oh, I'm a smaller school. I shouldn't be, you know, recruiting. So my first three years here at San Diego State, I recruited like I was it didn't matter if we were a major school or not. I was recruiting based off of who I was and what I believed and what we wanted to do. Like these are the goals I had. These are the type of athletes we needed to get there. And so we went after everybody, anybody um, like we got visits from kids who ended up going to Florida. I never um, had a problem recruiting against quote unquote big schools. Mm. Um, When we started my third year at San Diego State, we were eighth at NCAAs. Mm. You know, we finished eighth at nationals. Um, My fifth year, we were 12th at nationals. We were top 25 consistently for a few years after that. And so we were competitive, you know, at the national level. And that was always my goal when I got to San Diego State was, okay, we can win conference. Yes, but we've got to be ranked nationally. Uh, no matter if I'm a mid-major school or, you know, a big school. Eventually we came up, they came up with power five and group of five and San Diego state's one of the top schools at the group of five. Um, and, and some of this in track, you know, difference from track and football, you know, football's, you know, group of five and tracks group of five are very different, but we recruit and compete and train, not like a mid-major program, but we, mm. we compete to win. Mm. And so the difference, I think, with with being at a mid-major versus a, let's say, a, a, an LSU, USC, Florida, is that now with what's happening in collegiate athletics, you know, athletes and, and social media, athletes are more uh, driven by things 
uh, and stuff and hype than by performance, coaching, relationships, uh, positive experiences, and those type of things, right? So if you've talked to say, a lot of college coaches, you know, the, co- the collegiate athlete experience is tough. Mm. It's hard. Like athletes just go through some things. And I always knew that, you know, I was never going to be a program that used and abused athletes for points. We're going to be successful, but track the way I grew up loving track and how it's, you know, sort of directed and guided my life. I wanted to give that back. Um, and so whether you are a developmental athlete or you're a top tier athlete, like we've, we've gotten top, top 10 athletes before in our program. We've had those kids visit. I say the same thing to them. I say to my other athletes, it's like here, we're a coach athlete centered program. And my interest is that you get better. If you come here, you get better. And we've been able to do that successfully. Um, and I make sure that athletes know that this is who we are and, and, you know, what God has for me is for me. And, um, and you can get better here. You're just not going to get an iPad. Mm. You know, you can get better here. You're just not going to get five pairs of shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause it's a resource difference. The biggest thing, the biggest difference between a, a mid-major and a, and a power five is it's resources. Gosh, how complicated has like that shift with the social media and the endorsements and all that been like how hard is that for you as a coach nil's change things transfer portal has changed things you know the rules are, are the NCAA, the rules are starting to relax a lot ncaa and so it's it's becoming very difficult you know recruiting uh and just if i'm being honest it's becoming more difficult coaching yeah in the ncaa at this point you know there's a lot uh there's a lot of other factors mm-hmm. now that you're that you're working with I'll give you an example. We can offer a kid a full scholarship um, and they love our program, but they'll go to another conference and they'll say, they're going to give me an NIL. They're giving me NIL money. And it's like, okay, we're a better fit for you, but you're going to chase the money. And so there's the, the nature of track and field at the collegiate level, in my opinion, is changing. And so I'm at San Diego State, you know, adapting, but trying to make track as keep it as pure as I possibly can for as long as I can. Um, talk to me about that. Like you were talking about supporting the whole athlete. And one of the things I'm always super interested in talking about is, I don't know if you read Lauren Fleshman's book that recently came out, but, um, she talks a lot about that, that change the woman's body has, right? Like sometimes you go through that when you're in high school, sometimes you're in college and it shifts the way that you are running at a certain time and you kind of have to ride uh-huh. the wave. So I'm curious how you support athletes when you see them walking through that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Laura Fleischman's book, we are, I'm a co-president of a group called WRCC, which is women's running coaches collective. And we are actually uh, doing a, uh, we're reading, we're doing a book club reading of that book right now. Nice. And so Laura will be on, Laura will be on with us in our, in our, in our members and our membership soon to uh, discuss the book. So that's pretty nice. cool. You brought that up. Um, you know, that's something that over the years has become more and more, uh, I become more aware of. Uh, and I would say in the last six or seven years, just because I'd seen so many athletes careers end or have issues at the collegiate level with, you know, injuries or, you know, we've had uh, disordered eating issues and we've had, you know, just emotional mental health stuff and how we were supporting those athletes at the collegiate level had became, you know, a concern for me. So I sort of uh, took an initiative to learn as much as I could and find out as much information I could and try to understand as much as I could, how I could better help my athletes in my program. And over the years, you know, I also work with uh, I have something called Red Moon that I work with that is specifically focused on injury prevention and recovery for the female athlete based upon the menstrual cycle mm. um, and the hormonal changes of a, of a female athlete's menstrual cycle and understanding that women are different from men. Mm-hmm. And so when we're coaching women like men, you're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, the types of injuries they have, you know. The training, the, tr- the training uh, cycles and programs of what they're doing when really matters for females. You know, recovery is really important. It's recovery for everyone's important, but hormonally and physiologically, women are different from men. 
So I'd always coached in early on, you know, Bob Kersey was my college coach and then I had Cliff, but I always coached early on, just like, you know, athlete was an athlete. Mm-hmm. Athlete just, you know, I'm, I'm coaching workouts. I'm coaching, you know, workouts and I'm coaching workouts, mm-hmm. you know, on the track relationships. Yes, but you can, you got to be tough. We can make it through the workout. And um, when you see these changes in, in women and even emotional changes, you know, you have to realize that what makes what makes women different from men specifically is that they're e- emotionally just built different, just wired differently. Mm-hmm. And so being able to understand, you know, the emotion in sport helped me become a better coach of women athletes. And so when you talk about the changes in their bodies and some of the mental health stuff that's happened, especially since COVID, being able to, you know, communicate at that level with them is super key so that they leave college, at least in my program, leave college having an experience that they can can grow from and not an experience that has caused trauma. Mm -hmm. That's my biggest thing is that I don't want to cause trauma in some kid's life when they come through my program. Now, I don't get it right every time. You know, body changes, all those things you're just talking about, you're you're talking about, there's trauma that happens at the collegiate level. A lot, yeah. I don't want my... I don't want my program to be one of those pro- programs that causes that trauma. And so, like I said, we don't get it right all the time, but we're trying to, you know, mitigate and minimize that just because I know from my, my own personal experience. I didn't quite answer your question, but it's, but it kind of gets to where yeah. my, my focus is with, uh, with coaching. Yeah. I think that's so important and, you know, thank God we're talking about it more now, right? Like, thank God the changes are happening. Tell us about the, the coaching group that you have, the women's coaching group. Yeah, so um, Helene Hutchinson, Helene Hutchinson, uh, Melissa Hill, uh, Charlotte Richardson uh, were the founders of a group called Women's Running Coaches Collective. And about a year ago, um, I did a, maybe a little over a year ago, I did a same thing with you. I did a clinic with them, a virtual clinic, and I was one of the speakers. And a year later, or some months later, they called and asked me if I'd be involved. And not only that, be involved, but would I be a president? <laughs> Your talk must have been really good. It must have been. I think. Uh, I think you know the things that I'm talking about were were pretty much. I mean, direct in the sense that this is what's really going on. This is how we, you know, we can discuss these things. And since then, you know, I've come on board and we've done a, a great job of providing resources and support for college co- for coaches in general. We're focused on high school coaches, but for coaches, where we've all gone to women's coaches clinics, we've all done these these things that we do for, you know, oh, I'm part of this. Uh, conference for this weekend kind of thing and we all leave this conference and we never talk to these people again there's no resources there's no follow-up there's nothing sustainable so what wrcc is aiming to do and is is on our way to doing which has been great is you know the women's sports foundation covers all sports we are aiming to be that for the running space where you can come back Continually, if there's a we have a you know, there's calendar events, there's scholarships available, there's resources, there's community created around, you know, being in this running space. And so WRCC, you know, our our thing is we're changing the landscape of coaching for women, and we exist to amplify that power that women bring to track and field and distance running. And collectively, we can understand there's a much more holistic way of coaching. Mm. And what does that look like? And how can you be successful at the highest level? You know coaching women in a much more holistic fashion. Okay. So why do you think there are nearly not nearly as many women coaches as men coaches? I don't have the answer to that, but uh, statistically, if you look at when title nine came into play in 1972 and, you know, I have a, someone who researches a lot of this on my, on my staff, most of the coaches of female athletes, pre title nine of female sports are women's sports. Pre title nine were all women. Hmm. Women coached women hmm. back in the day. Women got paid less to coach women than the men got to coach men, but women coached women predominantly. Hmm. At a certain point, this is nothing to do with, this is sort of answering your question. At a certain point, they started paying coaches more money to coach women. And when they began to hire male coaches to coach women, they paid them more money. Male coaches then, you know, I'm skipping a bunch of stuff, became you know, basketball, I'm talking about basketball, I'm talking about main sports. Track and field is, is a low-level sport when you're talking about the bigger, you know, it's like basketball. Um, started hiring male coaches to coach women 
and the amount of money that we were paying these coaches increased. And as the amount of money available to coach women's sports increased, more men came into coaching women Mm -hmm. and more women were not getting these jobs anymore. Mm. So now you have a lot of men coaching women's sports. Yeah. Uh, And I'm going to go back to where we got here. And it's not because they're necessarily a better coach. It's because more money came into the game. Mm. Wow. So, so now where we are today, there's a whole lot of factors and everything is only one, just like one thing that causes something, one thing that fixes something. It's a bunch of things around it. And so we're getting better. I think, I think for a while when I, uh, when I came out of, when I retired from, from, from competing and wanted to get my first coaching job, I came out during a time when they were looking for female coaches. They needed a minority. Mm. They needed diversity play. Mm. So when I came out, when I finished competing and was getting into college coaching, there was a huge push for diversity uh, on coaching staffs. You needed, and you killed two birds with one stone if you have a black female. How did that make you feel? Oh, I hated it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was, I was, I was that coach that that was like, if you're going to hire me, I'm going to hire because I'm good. So I made sure I was very good. Yeah. Like if, if I'm, if I never wanted to take a job because I was a black or a female. Mm. And so when I got an opportunity to, um, to go to Georgetown, I interviewed at several different places. I got an opportunity to go to Georgetown. One of the reasons I really liked or wanted to go to Georgetown because they didn't have a sprint program. It was a primary distance school. They didn't have a sprint program and they weren't, they were okay, but there was, they, were, they weren't on the speed power side. They weren't, you know, that strong. So I looked at Georgetown as a way for me to prove that I'm a good coach. So I used my Georgetown experience, which is one of my favorite places to coach, by the way, as my way as a former athlete who people assumed can't coach. Mm. Uh, as, you know, if I'm a diversity play, black female, I'm getting a job or whatever, great. Being an Olympian helped me. I will say this. Um, it's hard out there to get jobs right now. My being an Olympian and knowing people I knew did help me. That helps you. That helped me with, you know, my process when I trans- when I, when I retired from, co- from um, competing. But I knew I wanted to go someplace where I could prove that I was good before I moved on. So -hmm. that was Georgetown for me because I hate that whole, I hated that whole concept of being, you know, you need a female, you need some diversity, you need African-American. Now, Georgetown was was pretty, um, I wouldn't say it was a a complete diversity play, but I was an an easy play. I'm sure they they didn't expect what they got because I actually was pretty good while I was there. Yeah, you proved it. What's the answer to that? Because diversity is very important, but- you know, you use that term diversity place, like you don't want to be hired just for that reason. So like, what's the answer? Um, I don't know necessarily what the answer is. I know that, uh, or I believe I can say, I believe that, um, I believe in hiring people that are good. Yeah, I really do. And so, you know, I will probably, if other, if my other colleagues or female coaching friends, uh, or listening to this, they'll probably cringe a little bit when I say it. But when I first first got to San Diego State, and I was hiring, I had a completely male staff for a really long time. Mm-hmm. I had no female assistants. You know, I had people of color, yes, but I had no female assistants because it's you know diversity is in my, you know, which which lane of diversity are you trying to to fill? Um, but I had no female assistants, and I had a very uh, my perspective back then has changed. Now I feel very differently than I did when I first started is I felt like, you know, if I'm going to hire a coach, I want to hire the best coach for me. And I couldn't find, I'm not going to go out and look for a female because I couldn't, there weren't very many of them. <laughs> and I wasn't going to hire somebody that wasn't what I needed because they were female. Yes. Yeah. Or because they're black. That's me. Yeah. When I find someone, I'd be happy to hire them, but I couldn't yeah. at that time. And so I had this thing where it's like, I'm not hiring any women coaches because I couldn't find any that were, were good or that wanted to be good, or I wasn't going to give anybody a job just because. Yeah. And so, you know, that I think, you know, in those early years at San Diego state, you know, my administrator probably didn't like that. I would say that, but, um, but it's how I felt at the time, because I think that as, as women coaches, and as even as a black uh, as a black woman, maybe it's because I'm because I am African American in the United States that I always had to feel like I had to prove something. Um, that we're in a space where, you know, you're only going to get credit when you produce results and you are good. You know, if you're a good communicator, be a great communicator. I feel, I believe that if you're good at something, be great at it. Mm. And over the years, I think as as you know that quote unquote diversity play 
has gotten better because we as women coaches have gotten better too. You know, there was a point in time where people were taking jobs that they were unqualified for, in my opinion. Yeah. Just because they could get it. And I just didn't want to be one of those coaches. I didn't want to be the coach that was going to come in and was going to like, you know, I'm going to drive the van. I'm going to hand off per diem. You know, I'm going to make the practice schedule. <laughs> I wanted to coach. I don't want to be a female on staff that's just pushing paper. Mm-hmm. What do you think the female coaches can teach the male coaches about that emotional thing we were talking about? There's actually coming up this uh, February 9th or 11th, I think. Uh, WRCC is being a part. It's going to be a part of the Nike Northwest uh, coaching clinic. And one of the things that we are talking about is this exact topic. We have a panel. I won't be there. We have a panel of, of uh, WRCC representatives that'll be there uh, talking about this and just getting feedback from male coaches on, you know, what, you know, what women bring to your coaching staff has been very interesting because there's a lot of sensitive subjects that are coming up, you know, now where, um, gosh, it's, it's interesting because, you know, Male coaches shouldn't be having conversations with their female athlete, young humans alone. Mm. You know, there's there's things like that that you're that you're talking about. We've got safe sport in play now. Um, there's a, a lot of variables and factors that, you know, just from a gender standpoint of being a woman on staff, it's necessary when you're coaching women athletes. Um, but being able to relate and have an athlete feel comfortable, you know, is key. You know, I, I think I'm a good coach. I believe I'm a good coach. And I am a good coach, but I'm a woman. And so for my female athletes, you know, I think that it doesn't mean I'm better than the male, the male counterpart. It doesn't mean I'm better. It just means I bring something to the table that, that you know, that makes it more comfortable for them. So there's not a matter of, you know, female coaches are better than men. It's just that we bring what we bring to the table is a little bit more. Yeah. For a female coach in particular, there's a young coach out of Texas named Lakedra Stewart. You should interview her, by the way. I I'm um, gonna write it down. She's a she's a high school coach. She ran it. She ran in college at Texas A&M. Uh, she's somebody you should definitely interview. Lakedra is a young coach who coached men, coached the men's football team. Oh wow! One of the toughest high schools in Texas. Wow. She coached at Duncanville Duncanville High School. Duncanville's like you know, these are these are young men. <laughs> These aren't boys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and just hearing her talk about the differences between coaching boys and girls is 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 very insightful. And having talked to her, I think that that she has she she understands what she brings, like how those boys began to relate to her as a as a as a woman and her, and their coach, who was a tough coach at that, was was very interesting that you wouldn't think, you know, that they'd begin to look at her like, yeah, your mother and my sister. You know, they got to protect her. Mm. So there you go with this relationship again. So it all revolves around relationships in my opinion and communication. Wow. That's so powerful. I'm excited to talk to her. If yeah, you should You should talk to her. If she'll come on. I, I, I hope she will. Oh, that's so cool. Um, wow, that's interesting. This is a little bit off topic, but I was just thinking about, um, I have, four, my kids are all boys and um, I have four boys and we just had our first male babysitter for the first time. And it was awesome. I'm like, I don't know that I could go back because this kid was so, I'm like, this kid is a role model for these boys, you know? And there is something about them having a role model that is a male. And so anyway, I'm like super jazzed about this male babysitter. Yeah. So that's, and that's the thing about um, just people in general. And that's why I think, I think so much of coaching is, you know, getting results and, and having an impact is all relationship based. Yeah. And so your male babysitter is probably perfect for your kids. Yeah. That maybe that's, that's something that's that having that role model is what they need. doesn't mean the, the females bad. It just means that this is what, this is great for my kids. Um. Okay. What's something professionally or personally you haven't done that you'd like to do? Professionally, you know, I need to write a book. Yeah. Or I need to, uh, to do something, you know, outside of coaching with, um, you know, I was an English lit major in college. So I probably need to write a book <laughs> about, about what I don't, I don't know, but I need to write a book. You, I did research that that's what you majored in. And I, I was mm-hmm. just saying the other day, one of the reasons Lauren Fleshman's book is so good is that she's actually a really good writer too. Like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like you can write about your life, 
But if you're not mm-hmm. a good writer, it might not be the best book. So if you have both right. of those, the story and the writing, got to do it. Uh, personally, I've done a lot of things. I don't, I don't know yet. I've, I'm, I'm pretty content. I don't feel like I'm missing much yet. I love it when people say that, though. I'm like, that's such a good way to live. I'm content. Yeah. What's the best, most recent book you've read? I knew you were going to ask this question. I was like, it's the stupid nest. It's not, I think it's a book <laughs> called, um, it's something on self-talk. It's, not, it's something for my athletes. It's a book, it's a book about self-talk. Okay. Um, and how to, you know, basically about self-talk and, and emotions. Okay. That's good. Um, who is someone fun, motivating, or inspiring you would like to have coffee, tea, or cocktail with? I can't answer that question. Because you're content. I have no, I have no idea. And I'm not a fangirl of anybody, so I don't know. <laughs> Who's a coach or mentor, though, that, like, is someone that you've looked up to? Clifford Belto, hands down. Mm. Clifford Belto at Kansas State. I'll have to learn more about him. Yeah. What is your last message to leave with our audience today? You know, my aim is to, is to always be more than a track coach. Uh, and if you're coaching, be more than a track coach. Mm. Uh, secondly, uh, my kids probably think I'm going to, if they listen to this, they'll laugh at me. Uh, you know, as a as a coach, I think in order for me, you know, professionally or personally to do anything I've ever, never, anything I want to do, I've never done before. The only way I can do it is by do it. So I always say to do something you've never done before, you have to do something you've never done before. Mm. So for me to write a book, to do something I've never done before, I have to do it. Yeah. You know, and do it. And so I think that, um, you know, being more than a track coach is key. I think right now in, in our in our co- coaching space, we're so driven by, you know, our own reputation and our own egos to, you know, want people to say our name. I'm going to say be more than a track coach. Uh, you know, help some kids, change some lives. And that's probably the most important thing, change some lives. All right, everybody, uh, go give Sheila some love. She is Coach She Be Gold on Instagram. You can also check out the Women's Coaches Collective on Instagram as well. That is a nonprofit for women's running coaches to support, unite, inform, inspire, encourage, and empower women coaches at all levels of our sport. Very cool. Don't forget to check out VDOT, VDOT02.com. Use the code Lindsay for 20% off their adaptive trainer. And you can get a 30-day free trial if you're a coach. Send me an email if you have any questions at all, lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com. Don't forget, when you leave a rating and review on this podcast, you are entered to win a pair of Gooder sunglasses every single month. We pick one random winner from all the new reviews of the month. It's super simple. It takes like 30 seconds, and it's a huge way you can support this podcast. I appreciate you, and I'm so grateful you're here today. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you next week on I'll Have Another.